Guys, let's grab Bibles if you have one with you or on your device or maybe it's around you where you're sitting. There's a lot knocking about there. Um, or you can simply follow along up on the screen. The, wor- the words will be here in a second. Um, where Gary brought us last week back into our journey through the book of Acts. And today we're in chapter 23. I want to read the first 11 verses. So listen now for the word of God. <clears throat> Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there and judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, how dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, brothers, did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others were Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I am a Pharisee descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, uh, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. There was a great uproar. And some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away uh, from them by force and bring him back into the barracks. The following night, The Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Let's take a minute and pray before we step into these words. Father, give us grace to hear what you want to say. Forgive me if I step to the left or step to the right. Forgive us if we miss or reject what your spirit reveals to us or tries to do within us today. May our minds and our hearts be malleable before you, Lord. You are the potter and we are the clay. So come, Holy Spirit, and speak and minister to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So my parents live in Tandragee. Uh, it's just, it's, yeah, it's about 40 miles west. No, east. I got confused now. West. Um, that, 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 down the motorway, down the M1. You know what I mean? Okay, there we go. Good. Um, and 
house to live, beautiful house. I grew up there from when I was 11 years old. Mom has it decorated beautifully, gorgeously. Dad does what he's told. Um, the exception being there is a downstairs bathroom in the house. Through the kitchen, towards the back door, there's a downstairs loo and sink. Some of your houses have these, yes? You with me? In our house, it is affectionately named, and some of you will be offended when I say this, I apologize in advance, the Bog Gallery. Because in that little cubby hole of a space with the toilet and the sink, Dad is allowed to put up on the wall whatever he wants. All kinds of pictures and paintings and artifacts he's collected from floor to ceiling. It is covered, the Bog Gallery, in stories and funny quips and bits and pieces from his life and from our lives. And one of the things that's in there is a painting, and I've got to show you in the script, it's a print of a painting that was done by a political cartoonist called Ian Knox after the signing of the Good Friday Agreement 25 years ago. Isn't that kind of cool? And there's all kinds of stories around this here. There was a thousand prints done of it. I'll tell you about that in a second. If you're very astute, and I'm not going to reveal names because I might lose my job, but if you're very astute, you will notice that one of the characters towards the back row is painted in slightly different colors than some of the rest. Um, and the reason for that is because 25 years ago, there was a certain DUP politician who had an unfortunate incident without his clothes at a holiday, uh, and the photograph was taken. And so when Ian Knox painted this picture of all the players in the Good Friday Agreement, he painted this character with no clothes on. And then when he went to get the autographs of everybody, including Nelson Mandela and Bill Clinton and Tony Blair and Mo Molin and all of the politicians who were involved locally, the DUP refused to sign their names on it because this one character was, um, well, as God made him. So he went back and colored him in, and then you have the, the DUP signatures along the top, which made the piece complete, and it's a wonderful albeit slightly comical, it's a wonderful testimony to an incredible moment in Northern Irish history. You can bring the lights back up. Has, better took that picture away because it'll just be looking at the picture and not listening to me. Let's be honest. Has the last 25 years been perfect? No. Of course it hasn't. But are we in a better place 25 years on from where we were? Yes, we are. Yet there is still a need for different political leaders and cultural leaders who have different ideas in this country to find a way to work together for the good of the country. I share that with you. And I'll come back to that in a bit, but I share that with you because the text that we are in, this story from first century Palestine, is no less complex than our political religious situation is today in Northern Ireland. What we see in this Bible text is a Roman commander who is charged by Rome to have oversight of Jerusalem. So his army patrols the streets and he enforces the law and he oversees everything that happens here. He, because of his political position, has the authority to call the Jewish leaders to come together and meet the Sanhedrin. They hate that because they don't like Rome. But 
They're under his authority. So when he calls a meeting, they have to come together. They're called the Sanhedrin. You have in the Sanhedrin Pharisees who are predominantly working class religious purists who really don't like Rome and Roman interference. And you have Sadducees who are more upper class liberal Jews who have a more watered down faith. The Pharisees believe in the resurrection and take things quite literally in Scripture. The Sadducees tended to look for more of the loopholes. And the whole thing is overseen by Ananias, who is the high priest. And the Roman commander calls them together. He calls them together to decide what they are going to do with this guy, the apostle Paul, who has been preaching that Jesus is the Messiah, the fulfillment of Judaism, the Son of God, come amongst them to inaugurate the kingdom of God. The Sanhedrin are unhappy because most of them don't actually believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They think he's some upstart. And so there's all kinds of complications going on there religiously. The Romans aren't happy. The Roman commander's not happy, primarily because the Sanhedrin's not happy. And Jesus, and by extension then, the Apostle Paul, have created upset and uprest religious and, by extension, political turmoil in the city and the surrounding areas that makes his life and his job more complex. You have Rome, you have Jewish Pharisees, you have Jewish Sadducees, you have Jewish Christians who are following Jesus religiously and politically. It's complex. It's certainly no less complex than the religious political landscape we find ourselves in here in Northern Ireland. And there's lots of things I could pull out of this text, but because of the week it has been and the the few weeks it has been commemorating the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement and people from all over the world have their eyes on Northern Ireland at the minute. I want to pull out two things from how I see the Apostle Paul carrying himself that I think are really significant for us as followers of Jesus today where we are. The first one is Paul's humility. And the second one is Paul's hope. So let's see how we go. The first one is Paul's humility. Paul starts off his defense. The Sanhedrin, the Romans are all there. Paul stands up and says, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee amongst Pharisees. I have fulfilled my duty to God with all good conscience. Now, Ananias is the high priest. He is ripping He is absolutely outraged. He is convinced that the Apostle Paul is not actually following God's will, but is blaspheming the name of God, taking God's name in vain, doing things in God's name that he doesn't believe God wants to happen. And if somebody blasphemes the name of God in Jewish law in Leviticus 24, they are to be struck and stoned to death. And so right there at that moment in the trial, Ananias, the high priest, says, here, hit him a slap in the back. Or something equivalent to that. He commands that he's struck, hit. The problem is that the Old Testament law, the Deuteronomy law, and it's it's technical, I get that, but the Old Testament law really simply says innocent until proven guilty. 
You can't punish someone for a crime until they've been proved guilty of it. It seems reasonable, doesn't it? And to prove somebody guilty, the Old Testament law says that they must be accused by two people. The weight of one person's evidence against them is not enough to bring about a conviction. There has to be at least two witnesses to the problem. And what we've happened here is the Apostle Paul has made his opening statements. No witnesses have been heard. And Ananias has pronounced a judgment. Hit him. Strike him. Or at least a partial judgment. At least. What you see happening is that the same Old Testament law that the the Sanhedrin are trying to use to condemn the Apostle Paul, they have actually been in breach of it in trying to condemn him. And, And Paul, who's a Pharisee, who knows the Old Testament inside out. He has been taught to memorize the Old Testament scriptures right the way through. Knows the technicalities of the law probably better than anybody in the room. He loses his bap. He spits the dummy. He looks at Ananias and says, you whitewashed wall. Remember Jesus said that to the Pharisees, you whitewashed tombs. You whitewashed wall, he says. You hypocrite. How dare you condemn me from the law? without following the law itself. You're telling me I've broken it, you've broken it. Who do you think you are? And somebody beside Paul leans over and says, here, Paul, that's the high priest. He's like, what? that's That's Ananias, the high priest. See, the problem is Paul hadn't recognized the officiality of the court that he was standing in. He had been brought there by the Romans. He knew some Jewish leaders were there. But in his mind, it wasn't an official meeting of the Sanhedrin called by the high priest. Many commentators also believe from reading around the life of Paul and things he says later in his letters that Paul later in his life had problems with his eyesight and possibly couldn't see and recognize the high priest across the room. Also, because the meeting was convened quickly, there's every probability that all of the the, the Pharisees and Sadducees, and particularly Ananias the high priest, hadn't got on all their religious frocks and garbs and hats and scarves and all those things there. So he wasn't dressed officially for it. And then finally, um, Paul had been off on his missionary journey, and during that time frame, the high priest had changed in Jerusalem. Paul hadn't been there when that had happened. So there's every possibility, most commentators believe, that Paul legitimately did not recognize that the guy across the room who had said, hit him a slap in the back, was in fact the high priest. And the problem was that in Exodus 22, 28, it says in the same sentence, don't blaspheme the name of God. Don't take God's name in vain. And don't speak ill against the ruler of your people. And Paul realizes in that moment that even though most of what he's done has been right, by losing his temper and speaking angrily and disrespecting the high priest, 
he himself has actually broken one of the Old Testament laws. And I love what happens next. Paul, who, as you read through the story, is, 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 is right most of the time, is humble enough to recognize that he's made a mistake. And he puts his hands up. He says, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. As you read the story, he's 90% right, but, but by losing his temper, he's, he's, he's disrespected the high priest. He's, he's stepped into error. 90% right, let's say 10% wrong. He puts his hands up. He says, I am sorry. I've made a mistake here. I've, I've overstepped the mark. I love the fact that he's humble enough to admit that and to apologize for that. 10 years ago, I was called as minister to a church in Balamoni. It was my first church. Um, and the congregation, you go and you preach for interview for it, then you preach for it, then the congregation meet and vote. It's very X factor. Um, but the, the congregation, is kind of X factor actually when you think about it. The congregation meet and vote. Um, and I, I didn't get 100% of the vote. I think it was about 83% of the congregation who were there that night said they wanted me to be their minister. The rest either abstained or said, no, we don't want this guy to be our minister. I, I get that. I'm, you know, I'm maybe not immediately conventional as a Presbyterian minister. You guys have all learned to love me, but it's taken time, hasn't it? Uh, you, you know what I mean? So, I, so I, I get that on first impressions. I do understand that. Um, two years into the job, there was an elder who was a retired elder who came to me. And I'd sat beside this guy every Sunday morning in a prayer meeting, and he came to me and he said, I want to say to you that I was wrong. I'm like, what? He said, two years ago, I voted that you shouldn't be our minister. He said, I was wrong, and I wanted to come and apologize to you. Now, I had no idea it was him. He didn't have to do that. But I loved the humility. I loved the heart of the guy. It taught me something. So it did. It taught me something. I thought it was incredible. I share this with you because... When was the last time you heard one of our politicians apologize? Put their hands up and say, I'm sorry, I got that wrong. I used to think it was out of arrogance that they're so just down in their own agenda, they're not willing to see anything else. And, and listen, there, there might be some of that in some people some of the time. Maybe some of that in me some of the time. I've come to think, actually, it's, it's more complex than that, more complicated than that. I think more than arrogance, it's fear. We live in a culture where there's no room for an apology. We, we have created a culture where if somebody says, I made a mistake, I got that wrong, everybody on Twitter is crying for them to be fired, aren't they? When was the last time you saw a football manager put his hands up and say, I made a mistake and still have his job on a Monday? When was the last time you saw a politician put their hands up and say, I got that wrong. I've made a really bad mistake. Forgive me, I'll do better and still have their job. We, we have created a cancel culture that doesn't create space for an apology, that doesn't create space for the power of the cross to be worked out. Where would we be if we weren't able to turn to Jesus and say, I'm sorry? if Jesus held us to the same standard that we hold our politicians. 
I wonder how easy you find it to apologize when you make a mistake. And there's, there's the big mistakes, of course, there are the ones where you're 100% wrong. But, but what about the nuanced ones? What about the ones where actually you're 90% right, but, but you went away from the conversation and you find five other people and said, you're never going to believe what he thinks or she thinks or he did or she did. And you lose all your moral ground by belittling the person who, who messed up. I love what the Apostle Paul does. I'm sorry. I messed up. I shouldn't have lost my temper. I shouldn't have disrespected him. We have to allow room for the cross to work. We have to create a culture where an apology means something. And as Christians, it must start with you and me because when we step out those doors, we live in a culture where there's no space to apologize anymore. But in our families and in our places of work, we have to be able to model what it is to say sorry and we have to be able to model what it is to forgive. Love the Apostle Paul's posture of humility. 90% right, but wasn't scared to apologize for what he got wrong. And then secondly, Paul's posture of hope, which I think is really important here too. Let's put the painting back up for a second. Stop looking for that politician. The story behind this painting is really interesting. It was, it was initiated by a dad who had a son who had Down syndrome. Now, I, I confess, I've tried to find out, I don't know the name of the dad or the son, and I confess that. But he somehow, some way, commissioned or got the idea to Ian Knox to paint this picture commemorating the Good Friday Agreement. And the deal was they were going to do it to raise money for the Down Syndrome Association. You can see the in the bottom corner. And then Knox had the idea about not just painting the picture like this of the orchestra up in the hill that made it all work, but trying to get their autographs as well. And you heard the story about the autographs. You can see every major player, their autograph. It's a wonderful piece. And a thousand of the original one was done, a thousand of them were printed and then sold off to raise money for the Down Syndrome Association. So the one my dad bought is number 427 of 1,000. It's kind of cool, isn't it? The reason that dad did it was because he dreamt of a better future for Northern Ireland. And he dreamt of a better future for his son who has Down syndrome. And we fast forward 25 years And we commemorate the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement and the changes that we've seen in Northern Ireland. We've already said it hasn't been perfect, but we're in a better place than we were in 25 years ago. And not only that, 25 years on, as we commemorate that agreement, James Martin, 
a young man from Belfast with Down syndrome has just become the first actor with Down syndrome to get an Oscar. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that incredible? Northern Ireland is a complicated and a painful place with a complicated and a painful history. There is no denying that. And I look around this room, and I've been here five years now, I know many of your stories. I know many of you carry scars and carry griefs from the sacrifices that you made and you saw others made during the troubles in the lead-in to the Good Friday Agreement. I know it was hard and painful for many of you to accept. I do get that. And it's important that we don't forget our history. It is important that we don't forget our history. But the Northern Ireland that my children are growing up in is a better place and a more hopeful place than the Northern Ireland I grew up in. When I was growing up here, my generation were looking at ways to get on airplanes to get to England or Scotland to university and they weren't coming back. Why would you come back to Northern Ireland? Whereas the Northern Ireland my kids are growing up in is becoming a Northern Ireland we can be proud of. Different, safer, hopeful, not finished, not perfect, but hopeful. Hopeful. One of the things we need to be careful of, and one of the things, I'm going to say this as your minister and pastor, and I'm talking to myself, I'm talking to you. One of the things we need to be perhaps repentant of is systemic cynicism. That line that many of us have said, and probably all of us have thought, it will never change. If I asked you to put your hand up, had you ever said or thought that, I imagine every hand in the building would be up. It will never change. But look at the Apostle Paul. Standing in this religious political trial, his, he says to them, I stand trial because of my hope in the resurrection. I stand trial because of my hope in the resurrection. Yes, Paul is being politically savvy. If you know a bit of your New Testament history, you'll know, and it, it says it in the Bible actually here, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection, the Sadducees didn't believe it. Paul drops a land bomb amongst them going, I believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees are going, yes, we believe in the resurrection. Sadducees are going, don't be stupid. And a row breaks out. Paul is being politically savvy. Of course he is. But more than that, and I can say this because we see it right throughout his life and right throughout his letters and right throughout his ministry. Paul is testifying to the power and the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We celebrated it two Sundays ago on Easter Sunday because the tomb is empty. Because Jesus rose from the dead. We have hope. Paul's own Life is a testimony to the power of the resurrection, to deconstruct the, the lie of the enemy that whispers to us, it can never change. Paul 
was a Pharisee who hated the church and hated Jesus and hated Christians and was going door to door, dragging Christians out, throwing them in prison. He oversaw, he held people's coats while they stoned Stephen to death, the first Christian martyr. Paul was responsible for that murder. He later talks about having blood on his hands. Paul is responsible for that murder. And yet on the road to Damascus, Jesus, the spirit of Jesus meets with him and says his name. And Paul's life is forever changed by the power of the resurrected Jesus. He is forgiven and he is made new. And he becomes from someone who hates the church and tries to destroy the church to someone, probably one of the most successful evangelists to travel throughout Europe and Asia Minor, planting churches and proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ and seeing the kingdom of God inaugurated in our midst. Paul's life is a testimony to the fact that the gospel can change people. Paul's life is a testimony to the fact that the gospel can change people. And if you are stuck in this systemic lie of the enemy that says people can never change, things can never change, then you haven't fully understood the power of the resurrection. What happened on Easter Sunday when Jesus rose from the dead, when sin was defeated, when the forever power of death was defeated, God gave the power for lives to be changed for forgiveness to be possible. And if you're here today and you're stuck in a pattern of behavior or a pattern of sin, if you're here today and your life feels hopeless and at a dead end, I want to tell you, Jesus gives the power to change. And there's an invitation this morning for you to turn to him and say, come into my life, forgive me. I need a new start. I need to do things differently. I need your help, God. He is in the business of changing lives. He is in the business of about turns. He is in the business of transformation. He is in the business of forgiveness. He is in the business of hope. And not just in the lives of individuals. The resurrection of Jesus is good news, not just for people, but for culture as well. The resurrection of Jesus means that change is possible. When Jesus rose from the dead, it wasn't just about one person. It wasn't just about some people. It was the beginning of God's recreation project where he started to, to inaugurate, to release his kingdom rule and reign on earth. It will not be completed till Jesus returns. We will live between the now and the not yet of that. But change is possible. The Apostle Paul, full of the Holy Spirit, gave his life to planting churches all throughout pluralist Europe and Asia. People who believed in loads of gods through Paul's ministry and the power of the Holy Spirit started to believe that Jesus Christ is the one true God. Lives were changed. Cities were changed. Churches were planted through Paul's ministry. You read through history, you have people like Stephen Langdon, the Archbishop of Canterbury back in the 12th, 11th, 12th century, who was instrumental in bringing about the Magna Carta, one of the first human rights documents to impact the whole country, to give people legal rights and human rights. 
gospel has the power to change communities. Or Susan B. Anthony, who in the, the 19th century gave her life to bringing about equality and equal rights for women, saying they should have the vote, give her life for it. And today, it's still not perfect, but it's a whole lot better. Women and men on equal footing. Or William Wilberforce, as a Christian, bringing about the end of slavery in his era, or at least bringing about legislation to say it's now illegal. Martin Luther King Jr., his, his ministry and his life to bring about a change in how people think about racism and seeing black and white as equal, one nation under God. Think about healthcare, think about education. Christians were at the forefront to the most significant changes in the history of nations. The resurrection of Jesus has the power to bring about transformation, not just in the lives of people, but in culture, even here in Northern Ireland even here in Northern Ireland. What time are we at? Let me share one more story. Back in the 70s, when the troubles were really bad, a group of Benedictine monks in France, young men who had felt a call to serve God in that monastic way of life, felt God called them to come to Northern Ireland to pray for peace in the midst of the troubles. And so a couple of them asked and got permission and relocated to Newry and stayed there for a while and then were given a piece of land in Ross Trevor where they met to pray regularly and then raised money and were able to build a, a, a monastery down there in Newry. And throughout the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, and even over the past 20 years, continue to be a prayerful presence where they gather together five times a day to pray the scriptures and to pray for peace here in Northern Ireland. Because they believe that the gospel has the power to change. We are not at the end of the journey. We live between the now and the not yet. There is every reason to doubt and to fear and to stumble if all you do is look at our history and look at our present. But if you can lift your eyes to the cross and see that it is empty, and if you can lift your eyes to the tomb and see that it is empty, you can do what the Apostle Paul does. I stand here today because of my hope in the resurrection. Can I invite our youngest member to come and join me on stage? I think this is our youngest. Don't do anything to scare him, okay? He's really cute. Johnny's really cute too, isn't he? This is Jamie. How old is Jamie? He's two and a half weeks. Two and a half weeks old. Possibly, I think, probably, possibly the youngest part of the Orangefield Church family. Here's my question to you, Orangefield. What do we want our country to look like in 25 years' time? 
for Jamie and the other kids that grew up here? Do we have cynicism or do we have hope? And what does it look like for the kingdom of God to come in Belfast and in Northern Ireland over the next 25 years as this young man grows up and falls in love with Jesus and does stuff here in this building and here in this city? And my final question is this. What is your role in church? What is your role in your family? What is your role in your place of work and your place of influence in making that happen? Jesus, we want to confess that there have been moments when we have given in to the lie of the enemy that change is impossible. In our lives, forgive us when we've thought that you could never change us, Lord. And we pray a prayer of repentance, a sorry prayer now which will look different for every single person. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and baptize our imaginations. That as we think about this city and this country, that we will be able to see it through your eyes. Lord, birth within us and nurture within us a contagious hope. Not naivety, not blind optimism, but a hope that comes from the knowledge that the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive.